0: So I said that our passage this morning is, is a warning about the consequences of refusing to do what we talked about last week. Last week we heard that since we have confidence to enter the holy places, and since we have such a great high priest, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider how to stir one another up to good works. And to love. For, and this is our passage this morning from Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. For, if we, after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine." I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As you can easily tell, this is not a typically feel-good passage like what we had last week. This is a grave warning that must be attended to. When I was reading this passage, there were four questions that came to my mind. First is, who is the we being referred to here? If we, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And then, what does our author mean when he's saying to go on sinning deliberately? That seems very carefully chosen? What is the substance of this fearful expectation of judgment? And as we all must ask of every passage that we read, how does that apply to my own heart, to my own life? This first question, who is the we being referred to here, is of paramount importance as to how we understand and apply this passage this morning. Is it the serious and dedicated Christian in the crosshairs here? If so, does that not give rise to Arminian doctrine which denies the eternal security of the believer? Taken alone, this passage could easily be seen that way. We already know that our author is targeting Hebrew Christians, believers. But why would he bother warning them of apostasy if, in reality, this is totally impossible? Recognize here he starts with, if... We go on sinning. He uses a a hypothetical here. And also, if you were to scan down to verse 39, as he kind of wraps up his thought that he's going on here, he says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Or if you look at the other warning passages that we've seen throughout Hebrews um, in chapter 6, immediately after we have this warning, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Our author seems utterly convinced by the fruit of faith he's seen in these Hebrew Christians. He believes that they are indeed saved. So that leads to a second possibility for who the audience is of this intended warning. Perhaps this warning is intended entirely for the unregenerate adherent, the person who comes to church and is just here, has never placed their faith in Christ. They would call themselves believers, but Jesus condemns these in Matthew 7 when he says, an attractive option that this passage is just squarely at the unregenerate who would call themselves Christians. It seems to handle the objections of our Calvinistic soteriology, which is a fancy way of saying our doctrine of salvation. It mustn't be the committed believer here. It's, instead, it's the fair-weather Christian, the Easter and Christmas Christian, the only-on-Sunday Christian, because the real Christian will, because of God's sovereign election, persevere in the faith, and as such are outside of the scope of this warning. So then, do these warnings just not apply to us? If I assume that you brothers and sisters who are sitting here are true brothers and sisters in the faith, that you are believers, should I just skip this passage and save it for an evangelistic meeting? If you've been paying attention, then the answer is obviously no, because that same assumption of true belief that if I were to make that of you here is made by our author. And yet, not once, not twice, but five times in this 13-chapter letter, our author brings to bear the same manner of warning upon these people that he's calling believers, that he says he's sure that they belong to salvation. So that rules out option number two. And the final option, which I find the most compelling is that this is something of a both-and. It is a damning warning to those who are unregenerate, particularly for those who would attend church and call themselves Christians but never display any of the, the fruit in their lives. And this warning is one that the hardness of their hearts will refuse to allow them to acknowledge. But it is also a warning unto the faithful. When I would preached that passage in chapter 6, the previous warning, I'd used an example from Spurgeon where he had talked about a steep cliff warning people against going near it, to tell them that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. The fact that we are told of the consequences keeps us from it. God says, my child, if you fall over this cliff, you will be dashed into pieces. And what does the child do? The child says, Father, keep me, hold me up, and I will be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God and to a holy fear and caution. And this holy fear keeps the Christian from falling away. Moral of all of this is that no one, Believer or otherwise can safely disregard this passage. This, war- this warning is designed to be striking. This warning is designed to be ominous and inspire in us a holy terror of the wrath of God. And to look at it and go, I don't want that to be me. And to examine ourselves. It is recorded here for the good of God's people. That means when I preach this, I can safely say, we are the audience of this passage, regardless of who the we is. We, the faithful believers, are the audience of this warning. We, those of us who would claim faith but have never acted upon it and whose faith is just in name only, are the audience of this passage. So having answered the who of the matter then, we reach the what. What does it mean to go on sinning deliberately? If this is directed at all of mankind, particularly believers and those who would call themselves believers, and for those of us who do believe that it's directed for our continued perseverance, which Incidentally, is the entire purpose of this letter, to encourage the perseverance of these believers. What is it that we are being warned against? And this becomes one of the great sticking points of this passage. Every single one of us who believes knows that after receiving knowledge of the truth, we have still sinned. We have still sinned intentionally. I know each one of us has since coming to saving faith looked at something and went, I know I shouldn't do that and done it anyways. So if we have sinned intentionally in this way, how does this apply to us? 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans seven seventeen, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. We're in good company here. But how do we interpret this warning against deliberate sin? This passage has been used all manner of wrong ways. At one point, it's become tied up in the mire of the Roman Catholic doctrine of confession and penance, eventually leading them to understand that if you haven't confessed these sins that you've made since your confession of faith to a priest and had the sacrifice of Christ specifically applied, then... Those sins were unforgiven, leading to penance and purgatory and all of these kind of things. Imagine the chagrin of our author to hear that he just finished denouncing this sacrificial system. One of his big issues is that it is constantly bringing up before the believer the sins that have been dealt with and bringing them up Every year. Only to have it replaced by a system of confession and penance that the Roman Catholic Church stipulates must be done how often? At least once a year. It would drive our author crazy to see the blood of Christ being brought against the sins of his people and cleansing all of these sins, past, present, and future, and taking away this yearly confession and this yearly sacrifice only to have it replaced by at least once a year going and again bringing up those sins before our very eyes but for us our author warns against going on sinning deliberately essentially meaning to intentionally persevere in sin in spite of hearing and understanding the truth of the gospel. And this sets up a beautiful juxtaposition that we probably wouldn't catch if we hadn't spent the time going through each of the passages of this letter. This whole letter, all the way through, is working on the people and convincing them that they need to persevere in their faith. And here he juxtaposes the ones who, though plagued by a sinful nature, still press on in their faith, holding fast unto the end. Hebrews 3.14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So he's setting up that versus the ones who hear the truth and drift away from it. Who hear his voice and then harden their hearts in rebellion. Who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away. Who have received the knowledge of truth only to go on sinning deliberately. Each of those descriptions is taken directly from the previous warning passages in Hebrews. This going on sinning deliberately is the exact opposite, the mirror image of persevering unto the end in faith. It is to know the truth, to have heard what God has done, and to obstinately persevere in our own sin. There is no get-out-of-jail-free card that comes with going to church. You can't just pray the prayer and... Be good to go. There is no, I've heard this so many times, well, why wouldn't you just hedge your bets? Why wouldn't you just, you know, pray the prayer, come to church every now and then, just so you know you're good? The crassest term I've heard for it is fire insurance. Professing belief and praying the prayer just to dodge the fires of hell. 17th century English Puritan preacher Thomas Watson hit the nail on the head when he said, The first deceit of repentance is legal terror. A man has gone on long in sin. At last, God arrests him, shows him what desperate hazard he has run, and he is filled with anguish. Within a while, the tempest of his conscience is blown over, and he is quiet. Then he concludes that he is a true penitent because he has felt some of the bitterness of sin. Do not be deceived. This is not repentance. Ahab and Judas had some trouble of mind. It is one thing to be a terrified sinner and another to be a repentant sinner. Sense of guilt is enough to breed terror. Infusion of grace breeds repentance. If pain and trouble were sufficient to repentance, then the damned in hell would be the most penitent, for they are in the most anguish. Repentance depends upon a change of heart. There may be terror, yet with no change of heart. You can know that you are a sinner. You can know that Jesus died to save sinners. You can know everything that you need to know. You might even pray a prayer that he would save you from your sin. but without true faith that leads to a changed life and ultimately to lifelong perseverance, all that knowledge will lead only to a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So what then is the substance of this fearful expectation of judgment? The substance of this is found in the Orthodox Christian theology of hell and judgment. And this has to be far and away one of the most uncomfortable topics for us to engage as believers, and as it should be. None of us should be able to lightly consider the doctrine of hell and judgment and come away flippant. The fact that any would suffer eternally, should drive us to tears. Even if we believe ourselves to be among the ones who won't have to go there. The scriptural truth that some are destined for eternal damnation is no easy matter. And as such, Many throughout the course of Christian history have tried to temper these scriptural truths. But only with blindfolds and earplugs can we pretend that Scripture doesn't teach that one day the justice of God will be displayed in the pouring out of His wrath upon those who have rejected Him. Probably the most palatable and widespread of these Attempts to soften this doctrine is that of annihilationism This idea that at the end of all things the righteous will go on to glory and the unrighteous will just be destroyed cease to exist It would be easy to see how this could gain traction doesn't that appease both the just and the merciful natures of our God But thinking about that, listen to this warning from our verses 28 and 29 of our passage. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For the person who sees just annihilation as a suitable substitute to this eternal punishment that makes us so uncomfortable, there's an issue here. For under the Mosaic law, death and being utterly cut off from the people was the punishment for being a convicted lawbreaker. But for the one who has known and has access to the truth, only to spurn it and to persevere willfully in sin, there has to be something greater. More simple than just, more than just simple death or destruction. And if the punishment of eternal torment seems exaggerated to us, and... It's pretty easy for us to confess that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that and how that could be. That's not a failing on God's part. That is a failing on our part, in our hearts and our minds, where we do not see how truly heinous and evil our sin is. What that sin represents This doctrine has become so prevalent and divisive that it has become a defining characteristic of churches. Just about any church that you go to, you can look in their statement of faith and see what their doctrine or what their belief is about what happens to us after we die. In our statement of faith, we believe in the bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust, in the eternal blessedness of the redeemed, and the judgment and conscious eternal punishment of the wicked. Sin is not unserious. It is deadly serious because when we persevere in sin, we're not only harming ourselves and the people around us, we're not just breaking some arbitrary law handed down by a divine lawmaker. But we are contravening the commands of the very one who created the universe, and we are necessitating the punishment of our Savior Jesus Christ who came and suffered the humiliation of the cross. We are trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant by which we are sanctified and we are outraging the spirit of grace. If we persevere in sin, we reveal how and why our sinfulness has us labeled as objects of wrath and enemies of God. So how does this specter of judgment fury fire vengeance and wrath all of it righteous just and holy which just makes it all worse apply to us this morning the first exhortation i can give you this morning is to fear god i know that there's often this concept that when these commands to fear god are given in strict scripture that they'd be better translated as respect or honor. I mean, we use it all the time when we talk about the example we use is fire. Like, Well, we don't have to fear fire. We show it proper respect and honor. But fear is the right word. Fear is the impulse that we as human beings all come pre-programmed with for self-preservation. We fear other people because people are dangerous. We fear heights because a fall from heights can kill us. We fear snakes, spiders, dogs, storms, disasters, whatever it might be, all because of the danger that they present to us. When Jesus sent out his disciples, they were worried about the persecution that might come and those who would persecute them And Jesus says to them in Matthew 10, Have no fear of them. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And get this. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. There should be a good and holy fear of the Lord our God, who is God of both mercy and grace, but also of justice and holiness. And this mercy and grace and justice and holiness, they are not opposed to one another. They are bound up with each other. Justice and mercy, holiness and grace, all of these are a part of who our God is. The character of our God should instill in us an appropriate fear that if we are saved, serves as a means by which he will keep us for himself. And a second application for us this morning is that we need to deal mercilessly with sin. If our God, the eternal God of the universe, is the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, then we must do everything we can, everything in our power to see that that doesn't happen. The sacrifice has been made to forgive your sins, every one of them, past, present, and future. But if we persevere in our sin, then we prove that that sacrifice was not for us. If we persevere in our confession of the faith, that is when we prove that the past, present, and future sacrifice of Christ is ours. If we persevere in our sin, we prove exactly the opposite, and we prove that we are deserving of this warning. James 1, 12-15, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one himself. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Our Savior was in every way tempted as we are, and yet was without sin. He remained steadfast. He bore up in the face of the trials and tribulations of this world. And as Christians literally followers of Christ, he is to be our model for how we live. Our life should as closely mimic his as we are able to accomplish with the strength that God provides. And when our own carnal fleshly self rears its head, luring and enticing us to sin, the believer must endeavor to remain steadfast and deal with that sin without prejudice. Deal with that sin as mercilessly as we can. We are told to cut off our own hand and pluck out our own eye if they tempt us to sin. That is the merciless nature that we have to take when it comes to our sin. And In our culture today, we make every manner of excuse as to why the things that lead us to sin also have redeeming values. So maybe we should just hold on to the redeeming values and try not to be enticed the other way. We're not going to be perfect. As we already said, we all know that we sin and we all know that we sin willfully. But we must be growing in holiness. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And how do we do this? We do this by following the command that is the flip side of our passage this morning. Remember, our passage starts this morning, it starts with four. This warning is an alternative to what came before. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Four, if we go on deliberately sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. There's no deep mystery here as to how we can expect to avoid the fate that is warned about in this morning's passage. This righteous judgment, fury, fire, vengeance, and wrath of our God is reserved for those who go on sinning deliberately, who refuse to draw near to God and hold fast to Him, and who neglect meeting together. Brothers and sisters, I would pray that none of you who are here and none of you who are joining us online would know the wrath of God that is going to be poured out on those who are condemned but that all of you would by the Holy Spirit avail yourself of the completed and continuing work of Christ in the sacrifice he made on the cross and in his continuing role as our high priest in heaven. As the word encouraged you last week, draw near to him. Hold fast to your confession of faith. Stir one another up. And as the Word says this week, for your own perseverance, be warned of the consequences that attend failing to do so. As the worship team comes to bring a closing song, would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, We thank you for the warnings that leave us shaking. The warnings that cause us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And Lord, when we come to the end of our lives and when we meet you face to face and we stand before your judgment, May it be said that our attendance to these warnings, the fear that has come along with these warnings, that you have used them to save us by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have provided a new path to you, opened through the flesh of your Son, that you have cleansed us from all unrighteousness by the blood of your Son. That you have given us a body of faith to gather together and to stir one another up. May we be faithful in that. And Lord, for any who are here or who are listening who have not bent the knee before you, who are the right and despairing hearers of this warning, might you by your Holy Spirit reveal to them the truth of the way that has been made? Would they confess you as their Lord and Savior? and then persevere in that confession unto the very end, living a life that is honoring and glorifying to you, not perfect, but lived in service to you. God, you are good. You are holy. We thank you for the fact that you could have left us to figure these things out on our own only to realize it was too late. But you did not. You sent your Son. You've given us your word. You've placed us in a position to hear your word preached and read. And you have worked by your Holy Spirit upon our hearts to draw us to yourself. And may you give us the strength that we need to Deal mercilessly with our sin, putting to death all that would pull us away from you. God, we thank you for each one who is here this morning, both here and online. We ask that in your will, you would bring us back next week to continue in the study of your word. Praise things in Jesus' name.